Software Engineering Radio, Episode 84, Dick Gabriel on Lesson. So, listeners, welcome to another episode of Software Engineering Radio. This is another episode we are recording at Uppsala 2007. And actually, we're talking to Dick Gabriel, who is the chair of Uppsala 2007. So, welcome, Dick, to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. And uh, first of all, thanks for organizing this conference. I found it really nice, so thanks for all the work you've put in. Yeah, it's a lot more work than uh, the general chair is led to believe at the beginning. I've been working on it for 128 weeks. Wow. Sounds really like a lot of work. So you were also the person who made these rooms available to us, so thanks again for that. Okay, good. I'm glad you could use them. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit? So my name is Dick Gabriel. Um, my background is uh, some degrees in mathematics, then uh, artificial intelligence at Stanford University. I worked with uh, John McCarthy at uh, Stanford for a few years. I started my own company after that. It was a Lisp company mm -hmm. uh, called Lucid, mm -hmm. and it existed from 1984 to 1994. After that, I uh, went to Park Place Systems where uh, I, I did more management stuff uh, by sort of accident. I originally went there to uh, write a book with uh, Adele Goldberg, and then um, they had some development issues and uh, sort of to – see whether the reason that I felt that I was fairly effective at Lucid was uh, that I was the people, the person who hired everyone. I wanted to see whether that was true or false. So uh, mm -hmm. I helped them out. Then after that, I went back to school and got an MFA in poetry. Right. And we'll talk about that later a bit. Yeah. And then uh, since then, I've been at Sun Microsystems and now IBM Research. Okay, cool. So you also already mentioned the topic we are going to focus mainly about uh, on in this in this episode, and that is Lisp. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little introduction, Lisp in three minutes? What is it all about? So Lisp has a, a couple. It's one of the uh, has a couple of interesting features. It's one of the earliest languages. It was developed. Uh, this is its 49th birthday this year. Cool. Uh, it's a uh, the core of Lisp is a functional language, which means that uh, everything in the language is a function, which means it takes arguments and returns a value. Mm -hmm. And then the way computation is done is by nesting uh, functions. So uh, you call a function with some arguments, it returns a value, and that value is the argument to other function calls, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's interesting because the data structure, the primary data structure, but not the only one, the list, is also the data structure that encodes the programs. Right. And so programs and data are the same. So you can construct list programs using list programs and execute them at the same time. And that was thought to be uh, how uh, artificial intelligence would work. You'd have a program that was artificially smart. Uh, it would construct programs on the fly and execute them, and thereby learn or be told things. Uh, since then, that's from the early 1960s, since then it's developed into a full-fledged kind of a systems uh, uh, programming language. So it, it was an early uh, sort of uh, – had early implementations of threads. Mm -hmm. Threads, there's built-in compilers within the runtime, uh, memory managers, uh, operating system interfaces. So typically, list programmers feel like they live inside of the language. Mm -hmm. They live inside a running execution of it, much as small talk people right. do. Yeah. So, um, in addition to having lists, lists and functions as the main abstractions, other aspects that are important probably is side effect freeness, right? Uh, as for the for the functional core, yes, yes. but ah. uh, for the non-functional core, it's uh, an imperative language. So you do have sequencing. Ah. Oh, I didn't uh, so know you that. Can, yeah, so you can do things. So there's a function called prog, which mm -hmm. stands for program, and. <laughs> What the function does is it takes no arguments, mm -hmm. uh, and then what it does is it executes uh, – it defines some local variables. It then executes a sequence of instruct – a sequence of functions, one after the other, yep. uh, all of which probably have some sort of side effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it returns the value of the last, ah, mm -hmm. and you can put labels in there and go-tos and stuff like that. It's called the program feature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there is an assignment operator. Now, Lisp is very famous for not using obvious names of things. So yes. the assignment operator is called set queue. So set quote. Uh, 
The reason that it's set Q, set quote, is that because it's a fundamentally a functional language, uh, everything is evaluated. So you need something that says don't evaluate right. this. So, yeah. uh, so in Lisp, if uh, the Lisp interpreter sees a list, it interprets that as a function call where the first thing is the function, everything mm-hmm. else is an argument. Mm-hmm. If you want that thing to be treated as a list, you have to quote, quote it. it. Okay, so uh, there are side effects. Uh, there are object-oriented extensions. There are arrays and complex numbers and mm-hmm. you name it. It's got hash tables on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So you already, already mentioned that uh, Lisp has come out of the AI community. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the mindset of how things were back then, why Lisp became the way it was in addition to just being able to construct itself? What was the The grand goal? What was the context? So the grand goal, uh, and this is probably more my opinion than the accepted opinion, was that the artificial intelligence people were uh, endeavoring to write programs that no one knew how to write. Mm-hmm. And so it was the, the idea that you could sort of sit down and say, well, you know, here is my problem. Here are the requirements. Uh, let me come up with a specification and now code that up completely crazy as far as the AI people are concerned. You know, they want to sit down and write a program that demonstrates some version of human intelligence right. or human behavior. Yeah. There's no idea. And so the only way to do it was to experiment. Well, let me try this. Let me add that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me try to add this fuzzy concept. Let me try to add uh, scheduling. Let me add agendas. Let me add resources. Let me have resource limitations. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is you're always – You're constructing a system that you hope one day will uh, show some intelligence, but you're not constructing it like making a ton of source code and compiling it periodically. Yeah. You're constructing it the way you construct a city. You build some of it, and it's running all of the time. So it's kind of like a live mm-hmm. programming language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's because the task of or the, 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 the work of writing artificial intelligence programs is considered too far away from what people knew how to do. Mm-hmm. So um, let's look a little bit more closely at some of the interesting features. And one thing that I'm particularly interested in is this thing that's programs as data and data as programs. Yep. So that was basically the first, let's say, implementation of meta programming. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about how this thing works? How do you, how do, you do this? How do you write, well, how do you make a list to become a program? There are several ways. The, so I'll, I'll tell you the classical way and the other ways are, are refinements that make it work faster. Mm-hmm. So one of the things uh, – John McCarthy was the guy who was sort of responsible for Lisp. He had the original ideas and he had a team of some grad students, I think six grad students and a couple other folks mm-hmm. who were implementing it back in the early 19 uh, – sorry, the late 1950s, early 1960s at MIT at, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, at that time, uh, there was sort of a debate – among logicians and mathematicians and computer scientists, but they weren't called computer scientists then, as to uh, uh, computability. So at that time, people were talking about uh, Turing machines, the von Neumann architecture, uh, and and one of the concerns was universal computation. Uh Was there a function, was there some mechanism that could compute anything that could be computed? Uh So the Turing machine was considered that. Now, It was considered that but with uh, the program that the Turing machine ran, which was the universal Turing machine, which would take a description of any other Turing machine and execute it. And that was a big, complicated uh, piece of code basically. Yeah. So what John McCarthy did was he said, well, using list structure and this functional kind of idea, the universal machine for Lisp is quite short. In fact, it fits on about 15 lines Mm -hmm. of code. Mm -hmm. And it relies on the fact that it's interpreting Lisp structure. Uh, So when it sees a list, it looks at the first thing. If it looks like it's a function, it applies it. Otherwise, it uses rules. So if it's a conditional, it does the the logic of that. It was a very short uh, piece of code. And one day, Steve Russell said, well, you know, if I took that piece of code and I hand compiled it, then that could be an interpreter for Lisp. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he did that, and that surprised John McCarthy. And they inst- you know, overnight, they had a running implementation of Lisp. When he thought it was going to be a many, many, many month, it took one night mm-hmm. to implement cool. uh, this interpreter. And so when they saw that, they realized that they could use this universal machine, which they called eval, 
right. uh, which, to evaluate a, a piece of list structure yep. or anything that Lisp has as a, as a program, you could then construct any list you want and then hand that as an argument to eval, and then that would execute it. Okay. And so that was the beginning of it. Uh, and it just really surprised people that they could do that so easily. Mm -hmm. So that's also this notion of the meta-circular interpreter, right. which is, I think, a really great geeky word. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's basically a program that, I shouldn't say interprets itself, but the interpreter is written with the same tools and languages as the thing it interprets. Right. It took a lot of people a long time to understand the, the concept of meta-circular interpreter as uh, kind of first introduced or first explained by Brian Cantwell Smith in the, I think, mid to late 1970s. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that uh, this universal uh, function, eval, is written in Lisp. Yep. And so what Steve Russell did was he hand-compiled it. Right. So you'd think, well, okay, so eval is written in Lisp. So that means that when eval is executing, it's actually executing itself. Yep. Okay. So there's this concept of you have a base-level program, which is what eval is, is interpreting, and then eval is up one level, and it sort of looks at the list structure and interprets it. Right. Now, eval is in Lisp, so you can imagine that it's at another base level yeah. and that there's another copy of eval up yeah. above, yeah. and it's like that all the way to the top. Yeah. 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 So that's the meta part. Mm -hmm. uh, it's circular in that uh, the language that's implemented in is the language it's interpreting. Mm -hmm. uh, and the trick, though, is at the top. You don't go all the way up forever. At the top, you need something like what Steve Russell did, which is a compiled version of it. Yeah. And so what that is, is it's a process that's exactly like what eval does, but it isn't eval itself. It's in something that the physical world can interpret. Yeah, a C program. A C pro it can be a C program. It can be machine language. Sure. Now, one of the tricks that people use, and, and uh, you can confuse people who are extremely smart with this, is uh, the way that a lot of interpreters are actually written is they write a Lisp compiler, mm -hmm. and then they write the classical eval, which is a, like a page or so of code, yeah. and then you compile it. So consider the definition of a car. So remember Mary said that Lisp uses interesting names for things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so if you have a list, uh, the first element is uh, uh, you can access it with the Lisp function whose name is car. Yep. So if I have the list one two three, yep. then car of that list, car of one two three is one. Yep. So uh, and that has to do with the contents of the address register, that's the original machine, <laughs> and yep. then cutter uh, means what's give me the rest of the list, yep. and that's contents of the decrement register. So it's using C -D -D registers. CDR, right? Well, CDR. CDR. Oh yeah. And then if right. you were going, so that gives you the rest of the list. It strips off the first element. If you want to strip off the second element, see DDR. Yeah, if yeah. you want to strip off the third, first three, see DDD. So you can have any number of these. <laughs> so you can sit in front of a Lisp system and type in what's called S expressions, these lists that are interpreted as code. Mm -hmm. You can type them in and they get eval, evaluated right away. Yep. So uh, you can type in car of quote one, two, three, the list one, two, three, and it works. Mm -hmm. So that means the function car has a definition. It means someone wrote the code sure. for it. Yep. So the definition that is actually used is defun. So defun is how you define a function. Defun car, it's the name of the function. Then you say it takes one argument, x. Yep. And then its definition is car of x. And you go, but wait. How can that work? Because it's recursive. Yeah. So you're defining the function car, and how do you do car? You call car. So if you keep on doing that, it's going to loop forever. Yep. However, what happens is the compiler sees this definition. Mm -hmm. It open codes. That is to say, it emits machine instructions when it sees car. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care that the name of the function it's compiling is car. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, when you define the compiler, you define a few things like car, how that compiles, yeah. cutter, how conditionals, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so these these sort of meta-circular-looking definitions look ridiculous because mm -hmm. they all look like they're infinite recursive yeah, but they're loops. resolved by the compiler. And they're resolved by the, com the compiler, which sort of bottoms out this – or tops right. out this tower of meta-circularity. Cool. Mm -hmm. One thing that is always – well, that some people consider a criticism of Lisp, others say that's – really its essence is that it basically has no syntax. I mean, you right. more, or more or less literally write the syntax tree in form of lists. Right. So that also makes it possible that uh, 
a user-defined function looks exactly the same as yep. built-in stuff, yes. which gets to this concept of growing a language that Guy Steele had in one yep. of his famous talks that's online on Google yeah, Video should, Will. We put a link to it. listen to that. That's yeah, we'll sure. put, put a link to it in the show notes. Good. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of growing a language and how that plays into Lisp? Yeah, so that was the, uh, another extraordinarily important thing, which I believe was an accident, in that, um, uh, as you mentioned, any function that is in Lisp, uh, the syntax for using it is identical to as if a, a user did it, you yeah. know, a person. Right. And then the, you needed some special other forms as well, so conditionals. So uh, the way that uh, Lisp interpretation normally works is uh, you get a list. It looks at the first thing. It says, ah, it's a function. And then it evaluates its arguments. And then it passes those things as arguments to the function that w is the first one. Right. So now if you have a conditional, so if you say, you know, left parentheses if, uh, you know, then some predicate, and then if it's true and if it's false, two separate yep. things. Right. Well, you can't do that that way because that would say, okay, I got if. So I evaluate all three things, the predicate, the true part, and the false part. But yep. you, you didn't want to do the false part. Right. If yep. you, so you needed some sort of special form. So in Lisp, there are special forms that are interpreted specially, and users can define those using macros. Right. And so what this meant is, again, this endeavor of trying to write programs that people can't write, artificially intelligent programs. One idea that quickly came to the fore was uh, Lisp is the wrong language for writing that program. I need a special program to uh, play chess. I need a mm -hmm. special program to understand mushrooms if you wanted a, yeah. a system to classify. I need a special pro programming language to you know, understand surfaces. And so many AI researchers would start their research in, in some area, trying to make a program that's smart there, by defining the language first that they could express their concepts right. in. Yeah. And so they would immediately extend Lisp mm -hmm. so that it would be easier to write the programs. And so a lot of artificial intelligence research in the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s was figure out roughly what you wanted to do, design the language for it, implement it in Lisp, which means that it's an extension to Lisp, uh, so it's just defining functions and these special forms. Yeah. And then write your great program. But then people would uh, invent these great languages as grad students, and their advisors would say, well, that was a lot of work. And that language you devised was really interesting. Why don't you write that up as your dissertation? Mm -hmm. And so people would write, you know, would start in some AI project for their PhD, and they would end up publishing uh, a language definition instead. Mm -hmm. and, and the funny thing was that, well, today you would say maybe that isn't really a, a different language. It's basically, we could call it a framework because it defines functions yeah. and procedures. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bit different from what people today consider language and DSL development because right. there is no notion of adapting the syntax because right. everything looks like trees. Right. And so the other nice thing is when you're a, a, a normal, let's say, language designer, You have to worry about the syntax, and though there's tools to make it really easy, you still have to sure. worry about parsing. Right. You don't have to worry about parsing. Mm. So Lisp has this uniform thing. You know, the first thing is either a special form or, or a function and yeah. blah, blah, blah. It's just, yeah. you know, 15 lines of code. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. You just worry about the expressiveness of... You what, know, the, what you write of yeah. the stuff, yeah. I mean, if I were a critic or a cynic, I would say you could do this with XML today, and everybody would say, "Wow, that's ugly! You can't yeah. use, you know, because yeah. it's basically literally a tree." So I'm, I'm, uh, that limited set of primitives and doing everything the same way is very elegant, right. but it's not necessarily user friendly if you consider a user to be some non-programmer, which is what DSLs tend to be focusing on. Yeah, that's largely true. Um, XML, XML to me, maybe I'm naive about it. Well, it wasn't a serious suggestion, right? right? It was. <laughs> But XML to me is is verbose, and so sure. uh, you would have you know some left angle brackets and some complicated thing, right yeah, angle brackets, sure. then blah blah blah, and then another set of angle brackets. And those angle brackets are really just left paren and right paren, sure. so it's more compact. Yep. Yeah. There are some systems. So, for example, uh, the The uh, the text editor Emacs yep. is a very simple engine, and all of all of the commands that you do that, that users use are are uh, written in Elisp, dialect mm -hmm. of Lisp, and 
if they're not naive users who are using Emacs, sure, yeah. but they're not AI people, they're right. not Lisp programmers, mm -hmm. and so it's a very compact language, so you can yeah, write a lot true. of things. So people less expert at programming in Lisp than you would think have found okay. it effective. Normal people, no. Do mm -hmm. Domain experts, right. no. Sure, so yeah. I agree with all of yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, the, only, the other thing that's about Lisp is uh, Lisp has a type system. Some mm -hmm. people think, oh, well, Lisp is not a typed language. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I guess there's some controversy about the terminology. So what I learned in school was that the uh, term strongly typed meant that no operation would be permitted to be uh, carried out on arguments of the wrong types. Right. So that's usually interpreted as the compiler won't produce code for that. Right. In Lisp, that's interpreted as when you uh, try to do that yeah. at runtime, it throws an exception. What you're getting at is that there is a difference between strong and weak typing and static and dynamic That's typing. Right. So right. Weak, Lisp is a strongly, strongly typed, typed, dynamically and, typed, strongly typed. That's language. right. Yeah. And so what that means, and, and this is useful for beginners, I think, because beginners use, would use BASIC, they would use Logo, they would use a bunch of other small languages like that is their programs are not verbose because it's telling the compiler about types everywhere. Mm. The types sort of are done at runtime. And so, you know, how do you, you know, how do you make X, the variable X, refer to a floating point number? Well, you don't declare that X is, a, you know, is going to hold it and then you type in the thing. You just say set QX to, you know, 3.14159, sure. yeah. blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then... If you, you can ask at runtime, what is the type of X, sure. yep. you know, what X refers to, it says, well, it's a floating point number. Yep. So that makes it a little more compact, which maybe might make it easier for end users. Yeah. But again, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, let's try it on them. I mean, someone yep. can try it on them, yep. but yep. it's not an argument I'll make. Uh, can you briefly uh, uh, explain what macros are? You already mentioned it on while explaining some right. of the meta stuff. So in most languages, um, so for your listeners, if you think of macros, uh, it's a string type of operation. So you see some sort of um, pattern of string in front of you. The compiler does and says, oh, this is a macro. And it does a string substitution to what mm -hmm. the macro means. So in Lisp, it's like that, only different. So what the interpreter does, uh, and so the compiler mimics the semantics of the interpreter, suppose you define the macro uh, Zetesh. And so, uh, and Zetesh is going to be a, a complicated control construct that's going to spawn a bunch of processes and monitor them in a particular way and, mm -hmm. and provide locks and all on a complicated thing. Yep. So you're going to write left paren Zetesh and then some complicated stuff. So you define that as a macro. You say def macro Zetesh. And then you write a description, sort of a pattern of what the different components of this right. expression is going to look like. And then what it does is it then you write Lisp code that produces the expression that you want. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the interpreter and the compiler, then when it sees an, a Zetesh expression, it'll run this code that you wrote. That will return as its value a piece of list structure. And then either the interpreter will use that in place of the Zetesh expression mm -hmm. or the compiler will compile right. the result. Yeah. And so – what that means is you always have uh, sort of syntactically meaningful units in your macro. So you don't mm -hmm. have to worry that you left off a bracket or a comma or something like that. You're always going to produce something that is at least a list. Mm -hmm. so, Which is different from C's preprocessor, for example, right, where you exactly. can do anything. That's right. You can yeah. put in anything. In yeah. fact, with C's preprocessor, I believe you can – uh, you can define the – I don't know C so well, so you can tell me if this is wrong or your <laughs> listeners can laugh their heads off. I believe you can have the uh, the name of the, the, the procedure or the function that is returned yeah. be constructed from text from multiple files. Mm -hmm. So you can't even easily figure out yeah. what the name of the thing is going to be. I don't know. I don't know that. Yeah, that so well you can't do that with, with Lisp. So you have this uh, uh, sort of syntactically uh, easy-to-get-right form, yep. and it's through macros primarily that people define these sort of domain-specific right. type languages right, right, on right, top. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. 
So you mentioned at the beginning that Lisp is at its core primarily functional language. Mm -hmm. You also said that it has object-oriented notions in it. Yep. There is specifically this, the CLOS or CLOS, I don't know actually how you pronounce it, um, the, the common Lisp object system. Yep. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how people got from Lisp to CLOS, CLOS and what the differences are and maybe what flavor of OO it has? Yep. So uh, there's a long history to this. Um, one of the important early meetings that uh, you know, for, for object people was, I believe it was in either 1971 or 1972, maybe 73, Alan Kay visited the MIT AI lab, mm -hmm. and they talked to each other. And they both learned a lot. Alan Kay was always kind of a Lisp fan, I believe, uh, in the 1960s, and they exchanged a lot of ideas. So at that time... The, the, so MIT was a hotbed of, of Lisp implementation. Uh -huh. So they got kind of interested in it. So Carl Hewitt developed the actor language, which is uh, a little bit different from the, the uh, I think there's another uh, actor dialect that came after that. Plasma, there's ideas of combining uh, the functional part of Lisp with the object-oriented part of, of something like Smalltalk uh -huh. with logic programming. But the real kind of breakthrough of, of how objects and functions were related came when Guy Steele and Jerry Sussman were trying to understand Carl Hewitt's actor language. Mm -hmm. So the actor language is a message uh, passing system. And so they figured they could try to understand the concepts by writing an interpreter for a dialect of that, which is very lispy. Mm -hmm. So they extended MacLisp to have uh, a language that they were trying to understand what is message passing, what is an object. Mm -hmm. And that language became known as Scheme. Ah. I was about to ask that, yes. So, so it got known <laughs> as Scheme. Yeah. And what they did was they wrote an interpreter, like what I just yeah. said earlier, yeah. this short program. And, and they thought, well, in order to capture some of the essence of what an object is, what they want to do is, is an object is, is really like a, a function that has no name, perhaps, and it gets as an argument uh, uh, a message, and that it looks at the message and decides what to do. What to do yeah. But in their interpreter, they had a separate branch for is this a function versus is this an object I'm sending a message to. Mm -hmm. And so they wrote some different code for each, and then as they refactored the code, they didn't have that term back then. <laughs> right. When they refactored the code, they noticed that these two versions of eval were exactly the same, actually apply, were exactly the same. Yeah. Then they realized, oh, message passing is a form of function calling or function calling is a form of message passing and objects uh, are a form of function or functions are a form of object. Yeah. And so they made that conclusion, but uh, sadly or happily, I don't know, uh, people rapidly forgot that because they thought Scheme was so cool mm -hmm. um, because it had these uh, the, called lexical closures. Mm -hmm. So uh, another concept in Lisp is this first classness. Right. And so that means that uh, anything that exists in the language can be returned as a value, passed as an argument, stored in an array. Yeah. So you can do that to functions. You can do that to objects. But soon thereafter, a lot of different experimentation went on with different types of object-oriented extensions. So there was loops. There was common loops. Um, there, I forget all their names. Yeah. Some of them were message passing. And then someone came up with the idea, with a couple of ideas. One was to... If you have message passing, mm -hmm. then you're sending a message to one thing. Right. So if you think about Lisp and you say, well, message passing is like a function call. So the object is the function and I'm going to send it a message. And that message is one of the arguments, but you mm -hmm. might send it some other arguments. So people started to write uh, methods basically and, and objects that would sort of look at the first argument at runtime and decide which method to use. Yep. But when people looked at that, they, they saw that the, the method call, the, method, the, method, the message send, it's invoking the method, if it had more than one argument, it looked like, you know, send message to foo, A, B, C, D, you know, right. four, four arguments. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, Steele and Sussman taught us that the send message doesn't count, so I can take the, you know, the, the object foo and make it the first thing, so that's right. the name of the function. Yeah. Then you've got A, B, C, D, and, and the first argument is treated specially. 
why. Why mm-hmm. is the first argument special? So they started to think, well, maybe at runtime you would look at all of the arguments and you would invoke the method that was most appropriate for all of yeah. them. And the example they used was suppose that you're drawing something on a display. Yep. So the classical way of doing that is you send a message to what the, the object that says display yourself. So then that thing has to figure out, well, what about the display? Is it a piece of paper? Right. Is it a printer? Yep. Or is, it a, is it a handheld device? They didn't have them then. <laughs> yeah. uh, they had handheld devices, but they weren't electronic. Right. So like a spoon and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, and so they said, well, it's kind of goofy to ask an object to think about a display, even if they could do it very abstractly. So it's, they would say, all right, so I want to define a method that when it's handed – uh, you know, an, an object of this class, yep. and a, it's you want to display it on a display of this type, yep. then it would just go right to the code. Right. Yep. So that was called generic functions. Ah, okay. And so a generic function is well, and so the arithmetic uh, the arithmetic functions in Lisp are like that. So mm-hmm. you can say plus and an integer or an int. Uh, and a real number, and it figures out what code to run to yeah. sort of do the conversion, et cetera, yeah. on its own. Yeah. So they just generalized that. So CLOS, which became the dominant uh, sort of uh, object-oriented thing, has that. Mm-hmm. So it has uh, uh, multi-methods, which are methods that are yes. defined. Uh, and then because when you have multiple objects that sort of participate in selecting a method – you don't really associate the method with an with object. one thing. Yeah, there's you no associate, special this thing. There's no yeah. special this, and so yeah. what you do is you uh, associate it with the generic function. Yeah, uh, which makes sense in some ways. And then ideas that came along at the same time were multiple inheritance. Right, and so that that came from a guy named Howard Cannon and Flavors, which is uh, he sort of thought a little bit. Uh, like aspects are, are sort of thought of today, but you know, there's some kind of functionality that's sort of the main functionality, but you want to add something on. You want to add a, a lock to some some object so mm-hmm. that when you operate on it, you want to lock it so no one else can. If you yeah. operate, you unlock it. So he invented these mix-ins mm-hmm. so that you could, uh, uh, you know, before you do it, you do the lock, and after you do it, you do the lock. But he didn't want that code to be sprinkled throughout. Right. So he defined these things, yeah, which yeah. are before and after methods, which are kind of what you see in aspects. Yeah, 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 yeah. So multiple inheritance was uh, used for doing these mix-ins. So uh, the intention mm-hmm. was you would have a main sort of single inheritance hierarchy for right. your main thing. Yeah. And then if you wanted to have different uh, mix-ins, right. they would have their own hierarchy. So they – they would not be blended. Right. But to generalize it, they blended. So they had multiple inheritance made things complicated. Yeah. And, they would, and, the, in, and the mix-ins typically had then this before and after things that would kind of enhance the That's primary right. structure. That's right. Very elegant, yeah. And so the, the terminology they used was there was the primary method, mm-hmm. uh, and then there were before and after methods. And, and again, the list people like to generalize. They said, well, yeah. that's just one type of method combination. It's so called method combination. So you have before methods that might apply, after methods that might apply, or you might have something that's interposed. So if you have a certain, you know, certain argument, certain object you're sending the message to logically, mm-hmm. then you might want to say, well, in this case, instead of using the usual thing, I'll do something instead. And those are called around, around methods. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and so that was called standard method combination, but you could have any kind. So what you could do is you could say, well, if I invoke this uh, you know, generic function, what I want to do is, is run all of the methods that apply mm-hmm. and, they all, and we assume that they return numbers. We'll take the average or we'll add them up. Cool. <laughs> so you could define any type of method combination that would examine what methods we're going to use and what the classes were. And it's all part of this sort of metacircular type reasoning. Right. Very elegant, very complicated. That led to this meta object protocol thing, which we – Probably would be a separate episode. I right? Fear. Yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you already mentioned scheme, yep. and in the term C loss or clause, I yeah. still forgot what you called it. I call it C loss. Okay. Uh, most people gravitate to that these days, but okay. clause is also used. Okay. The CL stands for Common Lisp, yep. right? So, can you briefly mention what what which significant dialects or derivations of Lisp exist? Scheme, CL. Yeah. So the primary ones, well, the primary ones these days. Uh, essentially, just common Lisp and Scheme are the two. Okay, yeah. uh, back in the 70s and 80s, because of the AI labs, the artificial inte- intelligence labs were separate, 
There was only a rudimentary internet at the time called the ARPANET. <laughs> Not everyone was on it. Yeah. That meant that every lab developed their own dialect of Lisp. And so there was Lur Lisp and Standard Lisp and uh, you know, uh, Mac Lisp and Stanford Lisp mm-hmm. and UC Irvine Lisp and on yeah. and on. I could go on for hours with all the, just the <laughs> names of them. Common Lisp was an endeavor to unify them. So all of those AI-ish type of Lisps became Common Lisp. Mm-hmm. And so many people liked Scheme because it was small and elegant and didn't – it wasn't so side-effecty. Yeah, they, so, they went off on their own, so they developed different dialects of Scheme. Yeah. So I think this, this, this imperative stuff you talked about before is something that is more or less in common list but not in Scheme. So well, they scheme do have it. They do? do have it, but they don't – it's just downplayed. Okay. Um, they, they try to write in a more functional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, common list – so the manual for common list is uh, 600 pages. Mm-hmm. The manual for Scheme – well, Scheme just got a lot bigger recently. But up until one or two years ago, it was like 30 pages, oh. so easier. <laughs> yeah. And there were some other concepts in Scheme that, that caught on, so a thing called continuations. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm topic these days in web development. That's Java. right. Right. So what a continuation is, suppose you're doing a computation and suppose you're, you're – producing a list of things or suppose you're doing a, a web transaction. Right. Yeah. So you might want to uh, sort of return a value now but reserve the right to sort of go back to where you were. Right. And so that's what a continuation is. A continuation is if something gets returned, it's a function and it says that if you invoke that function on an argument, then you sort of return to where yeah. that function, where that continuation was, and you resume. You kind of save the computation save the somewhere computation, and go right. back there. Yeah. So cookies are sort of a silly way of, of implementing mm-hmm. continuations. So there are some web servers written in Scheme where continuations basically get passed back and forth. You know, they 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 pass uh, tokens instead to refer to the continuations, right. yeah. but the server will hold the continuation, etc. I think Seaside in Smalltalk does the same right. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, Common Lisp doesn't have that. It's another big distinguishing feature. Ah, yeah, okay. The macros are a little bit different. There's some technical problems that I'm sure the listeners don't want to hear about. <laughs> uh, uh, but if they want to know what the heck I'm talking about, just Google for uh, or AltaVista for or Yahoo for or whatever. Uh, hygienic macros, hygienic macros, yeah. and that'll that'll tell you more than you want to know. I also think that uh, Lawrence Tratt mentioned that in the episode on compile time meta programming with Converge, he also has something with yeah. hygienic macros. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's get a bit more practical in a way that we stop talking about concepts and theory. Where is Lisp used these days? And maybe if I were sitting at say, why isn't it used much these days? What's the state of Lisp today? So Lisp is used, um, I guess I would say sporadically. Yeah. It's still used in, in some but not a huge amount of AI research. There are some commercial endeavors that are using Lisp. So, for example, uh, what are they called? There's a company in Lexington, Massachusetts. They're, they're called ITA, so I don't know what the ITA stands for. Mm-hmm. I apologize well, for that. Well. And Dan Weinreb is one of the folks there. They are putting together, and I guess they have deployed an airline reservation system written ah, in Common Lisp. Cool. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of companies like that. Yahoo Store, uh, sort of this this thing that um, you know enables people to produce uh, stores, storefronts, yep. uh, is written in, in Common Lisp. Um, there's a you know some specialized uh, like some vision. Uh, uh, computer vision stuff is right. written in Lisp. Yeah. Uh, some robotic stuff is written in Lisp. Yeah. Um, and it's just sporadically here and there. Uh, but commercially, it's still viable. There's still some Lisp companies out there that right. produce implementations, but not it all open source. It didn't catch on as a mainstream. Was it maybe because it is too flexible, too powerful, or is it because it doesn't have curly braces, as some folks say? Well, there, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, at your listeners who uh, of a certain age will be completely surprised to learn that in the mid early to mid 1980s lisp was the java of its day okay that uh People, the investment and the business community thought that artificial intelligence was really going to take off with expert systems and all that. And so the language of expert systems was Lisp and AI was going to take over the world. 
And so I believe there was a Business Week cover article about Lisp and Forbes had articles about mm-hmm. Lisp and <laughs> and I and others were, you know, on radio programs and all sorts of stuff cool. talking about Lisp because so it was you're so, again on a radio program yeah, now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's happened again. It's come back around. And so two things ha- happened are two convergent you – know, two things converged. One was uh, what I call AI winter. I can't remember if I invented that term <laughs> yeah. or uh, Earl Sachidati did. It was during an interview that he and I did, kind of like this one, yeah. um, where toward the end of the 1980s, the AI companies were really good at hyping what they could do. Yeah. And they weren't so good at delivering result, business results. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the companies said, well, it's because we're using Lisp. Mm-hmm. You know, Lisp is not statically typed, yeah. and so it's a little bit big. You know, it's a huge, huge, huge language. You know, the runtime for Common Lisp is three megabytes. <laughs> okay, so uh, your listeners should be laughing now because you know what is the average size of a you know Java program these days? A hundred and fifty billion gigabytes or something. Yeah. So three megabytes back then was considered outrage, completely outrageous. Yeah. Uh, because it didn't have static typing, static typing was optional in Common Lisp. Mm-hmm. That meant that uh, the compiler had to produce code that always checked the types, so it would go a little slower. So it was slow. It was hard uh, for beginners to write good code, and mm-hmm. so uh, you needed you know, really good wizard-level, very right. expensive programmers. There weren't yeah. very many of them. Yep. So it was slow. It was big, complicated uh, sort of more oriented mathematicians and practical mm-hmm. people, and all of that kind of conspired to, to for Lisp to roughly disappear for most of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any Lisp hidden in any of today's languages? Is there any worthy successor of Lisp, maybe, or what's going to happen with Lisp in the future? I think that uh, you can see the influences of Lisp in in lots of places. So Ruby certainly, I think, owns owns quite a debt. Because of its meta-programming facilities, yeah. And uh, any of the garbage-collected languages. Lisp had a garbage collector in 1958, 1959, Mm -hmm. and had garbage collection throughout. And so Alan Kay said, oh, of course, Smalltalk will have garbage collection. That's been adopted by Java, and that's mm-hmm. sort of a major reason for its kind of success, I think, mm-hmm. for some types of programmers and some applications. Yep. Um, Lisp is used sometimes as an extension language. It's yep. used as a scripting language in yep. some situations. I think uh, in in Europe, uh, you can, and you can talk to uh, people like Pascal Costanza, right. folks like that, uh, is is getting a little bit of a resurgence, uh, starting to be used for more exploratory stuff in the universities and some companies. Yeah. I would like it to see a little bit of a comeback because it's a very nice language, from my point of view, yeah. to do uh, uh, language research experimentation. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think it might have a little bit of a resurgence, um, but I think its most main influence will be through the ideas that spread. Right. That's talk a little bit about you. You oh, recently yeah. mentioned uh, moved from, from Sun to IBM. So what did you do at Sun and why did you do did you go to IBM and what do you do there? Yeah, so um, uh, let me tell a little bit more of the story that, that might be of some interest to the listeners mostly because it's, uh, it, it, it's a fun story for me to tell and yeah. because I like to tell it, it might sound interesting. Um, so in the 1995, uh, for one reason or another, I decided to go back and get a degree in poetry. Mm-hmm. So that's when I went to Park Place Systems. So I went to school uh, in a low-residency MFA program. Mm -hmm. And my company had failed. uh, Lucid had failed in in 1994. And so my goal was – my plan was I'd go back for a couple of years, get an MFA, and then go back to doing language research using Lisp. Okay. So I went off and kind of didn't pay any attention to computer science stuff for 1995 to 1998. Mm-hmm. When I came back, uh, basically all of my research fields were deleted. <laughs> that it was no longer possible to do research. There's no place that I could do research using Lisp. There's no place I could do research in Lisp, mm-hmm. on Lisp. I couldn't. Uh, There's no departments, you know, the university departments that would hire me. There were no companies that did it. Mm-hmm. There were no conferences for it anymore. They all got taken over by the functional programming guys. Mm -hmm. There were no journals that I could publish in. 
And you can imagine if you're a, sort of an academically minded person to go away for a couple of years and have your entire <laughs> field deleted. Yeah, frustrating. So it was quite frustrating. So at that point, I said, OK, well, I'll just consider myself a poet, uh, supporting myself by working in the computer industry. And so uh, Bill Joy called me up. And he wanted me to do some consulting for him. And so Bill Joy is one of the founders of Sun. Right. And he had a lab in Aspen called Aspen Small Works. He had two projects he wanted me to, to consult on. One was uh, supporting Christopher Alexander implementing some of his new ideas on what he calls the nature of order. Yep. So I served as an advisor to Bill Joy who was funding this. And the second one was uh, to help with uh, this project project that Bill Joy basically wanted to become open source. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Alexander thing kind of went away quickly, but then I started to work with Bill and Son on making this um, one project open source. And then once that had a little the success, that is say getting that project to be open source, he decided that Sun should move toward open source. Mm -hmm. So I spent uh, – how long was I at Sun? So from 1999 till uh, this last February, mm -hmm. so that's some number of years. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I was mostly converting the company to an open source company. Mm -hmm. So learning and teaching about uh, licenses, uh, teaching how to build communities, yeah. uh, trying to figure out how companies could participate in open source because right. that's really not like what the sort of open source was about. Yeah. Teaching management, coming up with business strategies. Eventually, my colleague and I, Ron Goldman, wrote a book on that, which is kind of it's sort of like a handbook for businesses on how to do open source oh, yeah. and what okay. it all means. We'll put a link to it in the show yeah. notes. And so, being an open source book, it ah. is available online <laughs> yeah. for free. Great, uh, but you can also buy it. So there's a there's a I'm not sure there's a PDF of it, but certainly a, a HTML version yep. of it that's yep. uh, easily available. Mm -hmm. um, and I think open source books have to be that way. And when we sort of succeeded, when Ron Goldman, the co-author, and I succeeded in that, we went back into Sun Labs and to work on some uh, some research on keeping um, – we call it self-sustaining systems mm – -hmm. uh, how to kind of marry – uh, traditional programming with some biological concepts to mm -hmm. sort of keep programs right. alive, yeah. um, to sort of solve some problems on both sides of yeah. that equation. Mm -hmm. uh, Sun Labs uh, is a very um, old-fashioned type of lab. It's a very engineering-oriented lab. Mm -hmm. And they were not as as friendly, I would say, toward a project that was very expansive like that. Yeah. So it just felt a little bit like they, they, they liked what I was doing, but I just felt like maybe I should be somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So I liked Sun a lot. And so in, in February of this year, I moved to IBM Research mm -hmm. where I think there's a little more freedom. It's a little bit bigger company. There's a, there's a little bit more resources. Yep. Um, they seem to understand – so I was the general chair of Oops Now they mentioned 128 right. weeks. So if you do the math, that's like more than two years. Yeah. You uh, mean it was full-time? Uh, so it was full-time for me for the last uh, – since June 1, so wow. July, August, September, <laughs> October, wow. November. Five months of full-time, mm -hmm. five months of uh, half-time to three-quarters time. Yeah. And then the rest of the months were about – Twenty-five uh, percent time. So that's well, a big, big, big. Yes, yes, absolutely. Upsala is complex. I'm yeah. sure you've been gathering yes. that from these interviews. <laughs> yeah, and you're working on this ultra-large-scale system stuff, right? So we've, so, had, we've had an episode on that yes, already. Yes, that's right. Before. So uh, a couple of years ago, I joined this uh, task force that was looking at uh, task force. Sounds like a really military thing, but yeah. uh, a study group for ultra-large-scale. So what would it mean to have a system of a billion lines of code, mm. for example? Mm -hmm. How would you put that together? And right. Well, yeah. Would there be an architect? Could there be that a single mind that conceived of it? <laughs> yeah. So um, I work on that. I work on some of the self-sustaining system stuff. And so and I do some public service things like Oopsla. Cool. So to wrap this thing up, do you want to briefly talk a little bit about your poetry side and how you think poetry literature should go or should be of more importance in the software field and this kind of stuff? Yeah, there's a couple of aspects of that. Um, when I when I didn't have a literature background when I went back to school, mm -hmm. um, and 
learning writing and, and sort of learning about creativity was not ex- what I expected. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was surprising about it is that it can be taught more or less. Mm-hmm. And it's taught by a, a way of teaching and not by the, the – subject matter or not content that's sort of thrown at you. Right. And the way you learn is it's sort of creating and revising and examining other creations uh, while reflecting, while thinking mm-hmm. about it, while writing about what you're doing and what you see. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I found out was that uh, creativity comes from being having a sort of a, a diversity of ideas and right. a background, putting together, you know, synthesizing things. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that applies to science, mm-hmm. that the methods of teaching, uh, the way you teach writing, that you teach art, should be used for teaching design, software design, right. and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I've been working a little bit on creating an MFA of softwares or MFA of design uh, for that. Also, I think a lot of the ways of doing exploration, this whole concept of getting lost in order to discover – I think applies to the work we do as technologists, engineers, and and I think it's uh, it's quite informative. Yep. Writing poetry itself um, is is quite an interesting enterprise because you need to open yourself up to a type of observation that's that you can learn how to do uh, that is is not that commonly used or not consciously used in the in the software world or the computer science world. The way I sort of starting to talk about it these days, it's sort of uh, you know the influence of chaos on reason. So you know, it's, so going back to sort of an AI way of thinking about things. Imagine that you had a, like a theorem prover that was trying to reason about chess or doing something like that, mm-hmm. and running at the same time and same address space was this sort of rapidly associative program that just sort of every time the rational part was sort of trying to prove something or looking at a concept, then this other thing would shout out anything that was related metaphorically or mm-hmm. sort of linked together. That's what creativity in the poetry world feels like, that there's this chaotic thing that's going on that you sometimes pay attention to and it just informs you. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to sort of spread that idea and get other people to work and think that way because I think it would help them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the thing. The other thing that's interesting about it is for the last seven years I've written a poem a day. Cool. Yeah, I've seen that on your website. <laughs> and so uh, in the poetry world, the, the idea of writing a poem a day for a week is more than most poets can bear. Uh, writing a poem a day for a month is considered impossible. Uh, there's one or two people who have done it for a year and doing it for seven years in a row. Quite a bit um, of work. I've gotten to a place in what it's like to write poetry. I'm not a great poet. Yeah. That the the poets that I know who are good poets see, you know, when I talk about my process now, it's so different from what they do mm-hmm. that they want to understand it because no one go, has gone that far with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, put a link to some of them. Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, I I think that scientists and artists need to get together more yep. and sort of help each yep. other out because yep. we're all interested in the same things ultimately. Yep. Yep. One last thing that's maybe worth mentioning is that I think it was you who introduced the um, writer's workshop concept known from literature yep. into the patterns community. That's right. So that's another kind of cross-bleeding yep. of these different yep. worlds. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Dick. Well, Anything you else much. you wanted to say before we shut this down? Uh, I've been, I really enjoy software engineering radio. Um, as you know, or your, or your listeners know, uh, we used uh, you for doing some yes. podcasts yes. for Oopsla. Thank you for uh, making I, that possible. I just love the way you do this. So that is, of course, really good to hear. Thank you, Dick, for these nice words. And thank you for the interview. I know you have been very busy at Oopsla and you still found the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Before we shut down this episode, I want to play... A song. It is called God Wrote in Lisp. It's obviously about Lisp. I've uh, gotten to know this song uh, during a talk Dick and Guy Steele gave at Uppsala. It was called 50 and 50. It was about 50 different interesting features in 50 programming languages over the last years. Really, really great talk. Standing ovations at the end. Um, so the song I'm going to play is from the Roundworm album by Prometheus Music and Ellie Goldberg from uh, Prometheus Music allowed us to use it on the podcast. It's performed by Julia Eckler and uh, the lyricist uh, is Bob Kanevsky. Have fun listening to it and talk to you at the next SE Radio podcast episode. Bye. Bye.
construction work with a toothpick for a tooth. So when I made my senior year, I threw my coat away and learned the way to program that I still prefer to. feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net.
You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.